Good morning. Uh, my name's Amy, and I'm doing the second Bible reading for today. Um, the passage is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 21. Um, you can follow on the screen behind me or uh, read from your Bibles. Uh, so verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring out in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one can see, has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed in, doing, in so doing and departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Thanks, Amy. Uh, it's great to be with you today. Uh, my name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. And uh, as Pete said, isn't it great that we can be together with so many of us here in the church building, so praise God uh, for that. Uh, we're going to have our sermon now, so it'd be great if you've got your Bible, if you could keep it open as we work through the text together. Uh, but as we begin, I'm going to pray, so please uh, pray with me. Great God above, we, uh, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, Father, would you be active through your word now as we sit under it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, someone's last words can tell you a lot about what that person is like. For example, do you know what the last words of Oscar Wilde were? Uh, he's a famous Irish poet and playwright. And this were his, these were his, fa his last words. He said, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. Uh, not long after that, he died. So I guess the wallpaper won that duel. But it shows us a little bit about what Oscar Wilde was like. He obviously had a bit of a sense of humour. Uh, he obviously cared about uh, beauty and fashion and had a, a sense of taste. Or what about uh, the US general... John Sedgwick. Uh, do you know what his final words were? As they lined him up to shoot him from the firing squad, 
Uh, this is what he said. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance, was of course cut off as they did in fact hit him from that distance. And so, again, it tells us a lot about what John Sedgwick was like. He was obviously a fearless man who could stare death in the face and come back with this comment. And he obviously had great contempt for his enemies as they uh, lined him up and shot him. Or what about Leonardo da Vinci, the famous painter and the painter of the Mona Lisa? Uh, Do you know what his final words were? He said this, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I mean, how amazing is that? This is one of the greatest artists of all time who painted paintings like the Mona Lisa. And yet he says his quality is so low that it's offensive to God and to mankind. Quite incredible, isn't it? But again, it shows us a lot about how he thinks, how he ticks. And it shows us that perhaps this drive is what helped him to get to such a high standard because he held himself to such a high standard. See, someone's last words can tell you a lot about them. And today what we have are Paul's last words for Timothy, or at least what he thought were his last words at the time. Now, of course, we know with the benefit of hindsight that uh, Paul lived longer and was actually able to send another letter to Timothy, to Timothy, But, of course, he doesn't know that at the time. And so as he's writing these words, he thinks these are his last words to Timothy. And, in fact, um, not just to Timothy, but to us as well. Because uh, Paul kind of looks on Timothy as a beloved son in the faith. And so then, how, how would he look on us? Well, I think he'd look on us as his great, 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 great grandkids in the faith. And so uh, these words aren't just Paul's final words to Timothy, but also they're his final words to us. But these final words, these last words, are much more important than Leonardo da Vinci's words or than Oscar Wilde's words, because those words just gave an insight into who they were. But these words we have today give us an insight into what we must be like, how we're to live our lives. Because uh, Paul's final words are this, he says, you, O man of God, this is how you must live. His final words to Timothy and to us are instructions for how we're to live. And in particular, he tells us that we're to live in light of Christ's return. We're to live in light of Christ's return. He says, don't forget that Christ will return one day. Uh, This time, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And so he says, so live accordingly. Live in light of that fact. And so what does it look like to live in light of that fact? Well, firstly, living in light of Christ's return means that we're to flee. Where to flee? Did you ever think about that? Is that what you expected to hear? That we are to flee. But that is what he says. Have a look at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all of this. He says where to flee. Now, uh, the Greek word used here for flee is in a tense that we don't have the equivalent of in English. It's what's called the present tense. And uh, what it means in the Greek is that it's an ongoing sense. It's not just flee once, but it's flee and keep fleeing and keep fleeing and keep fleeing. It's an ongoing command. And what are we to keep fleeing from? Well, all of this, that is what Paul's just been talking about earlier in chapter 6. We're to flee from the dangers of false teachers and the way that they distort the gospel. 
We're to flee from the temptation of money. We're to flee from discontentment. In fact, we're to flee from anything that distracts us from God's love. We're to flee from it. And have you ever thought about that as a strategy? It might feel like quite a, bit, quite a strange one, doesn't it? We might even feel like a bit of a wimp for saying that we're meant to flee. But actually, sometimes the best thing to do is flee. A great example of this is the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. I don't know if you can uh, remember that story, but uh, Joseph is working for a man named Potiphar. And while Potiphar's away doing stuff, doing work or whatever he's off on, Potiphar's wife comes along and she likes the look of Joseph and she tries to seduce Joseph. But Joseph uh, doesn't want a bar of it and so he flees from her, he runs away. In fact, so much does he kind of extricate himself from the situation that she's left holding his cloak as he runs away. And in a sense, that's what we're meant to be like with sin from anything that will distract us from God's love, from living in light of Christ's return. We're to flee from it. We're to flee from ungodliness. And so what does that look like then for us in our lives? Well, sometimes it might mean fleeing certain people. I'm sure most of us can think of people in our life now or people that have been in our lives at one time or another that were actually an extremely bad influence on us. Where we were with them, our godliness suffered, we spoke more crassly, and we started longing after the things of this world, and Paul says, flee from that, get away from that, remove yourself from that situation. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we should flee from any friendship with non-Christians, of course not. But we do need to be wise about who we spend our time with and the impact and influence it might have on us. And we also need to be wise about how we spend our time. Have you ever noticed that uh, the books you're reading or the TV shows you're watching or the podcasts you're listening to, have you ever noticed how they influence how you think? That they influence what it is you're longing for and you're desiring. And that can be a good thing if we're watching good TV shows or reading good books or listening to good podcasts. That's a great thing. It influences us for the good. But of course it can have a harmful impact on us if we're not listening to good things, watching good shows, reading good books. And Paul says, flee from that. Remove yourself from that situation. See, sometimes the best thing to do in order to live in light of Christ's return is to flee. But of course, it's not enough to just flee. It's not enough to just run away from something. We also need to run towards something. And we know that's the way things work often in life, isn't it? Uh, What about John and Yvonne and the kids on leave at the moment? They decided they wanted to get away from Melbourne. And so what did they do? Well, they didn't just hop in the car and drive. No, they decided on a destination, Tasmania, and then they went there. See, sometimes in life, we need to not just move away from something, but head towards something. And it's a little bit like that with our Christian life. It's not just enough to flee away from ungodliness. We also need to head towards something. And so Paul tells us, head towards godliness. He says, follow godliness. Pursue godliness. Have a look again at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
Uh, now, the word here for pursue is uh, diuku, and it's a strong word that conveys the sense of single-minded pursuit. It's like a hunting dog that's chasing down its prey, just chasing, chasing, chasing. It's to energetically follow. And what are we then to follow? Well, we're given a list here, and uh, we're, having spent our whole time over the last couple of months working through 1 Timothy, we should be very familiar with lists like this. It's similar to lists we're given in chapter 2, and in chapter 3, and in chapter 4. We're to pursue righteousness and godliness. We're to be people who do what's right. And we're to do that because of our faith in God. That's our motivator, our faith in Him and our love for Him. Not because we're forced to, not because we feel obliged to, but because we want to out of love for God and for love for others. And as we do that, as, we, as we're people who do what's right, did you see how we're meant to do it? We're meant to do it with gentleness. We're meant to do it gently. It's not enough to just do what's right. We also need to do it in a way that's godly. See, that's the kind of people that we're meant to be. That's what it looks like to live in light of Christ's return. We flee away from ungodliness and we follow, we pursue godliness. And what's vital to see here is that uh, this is an active idea. This is not a passive idea. The verb used, diuko, is an active verb. That means that it's not something that's done to us. It's something we do. We don't just become godly by accident. We need to actively pursue it. And there's lots of ways we could do this. I'm sure you could sit there and you could come up with many different ways to do this, and I'm sure they'd be great. But I want to suggest to you just two in particular, two things for you to think about and to focus on. Firstly, actively following, pursuing godliness might mean finding an older, wiser, more mature Christian to learn from, to imitate as they imitate Christ. Thinking back on my Christian life so far, the times where I've grown the most in godliness were the times where I had older, wiser Christians speaking into my life. Older Christians who challenged me and asked the hard questions that no one else would ask. Older Christians who encouraged me by reminding me about what God's done for me. Older Christians who then spurred me on to love God more because of that. See, it's at those times in particular that I excelled in my faith. And so what does that mean for you? Well, it might mean looking for someone here at church that you admire and observe them and watch how they live. Watch their righteousness and their godliness. Watch their love for God and their faith in Him. Watch how they always act gently. Watch them and learn. And then talk to them about it. Say, I notice that you're godly and gracious and gentle, that you're always so kind and loving to everyone. How do you do that? And you could even potentially ask them if they'd be willing to meet up with you to read the Bible together and pray together. See, pursuing, following godliness means actively pursuing it by learning from others. And it also means praying about it. If we want to grow in godliness, then we need God's help because it's only by God's help that we can grow in godliness. I mentioned a few weeks ago about how I pray through the fruit of the Spirit. I pray for a different one each month. And what I find is that as I do, God uses the situations around me for that month 
to be growing me in that particular fruit, in patience or in kindness or in joy. And so why not consider doing something like that, actively praying about your godliness, asking God for help, coming before him on our knees. And so how do we live in light of Christ's return? We start by fleeing from ungodliness. And then we follow, we pursue godliness. But of course, all of that isn't easy. There's a spiritual battle going on. And so that's why in some situations we're to fight. Have a look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now we might hear that word fight and think of a battleground, but actually that's not what the Greek word here uh, means or the feeling it's got. It isn't about warfare, although Paul has used the warfare illustration at times in 1 Timothy. But rather the word, the sense of the word here is that it's fighting for a prize, contending in athletic pursuit, uh, like pushing yourself in a race or pushing yourself in a boxing match to keep on fighting in that sense. Uh, when I used to play football, we did uh, lots of off-season training and one of the things we'd do were timed trials around Princes Park. And of course, uh, we all want to impress the coaches and get a PB, personal best. And so we'd push hard and I can still remember now, years later, the feeling as I turned that final corner, that final stretch, and it was quite deceptive because you'd think that it was close by, but it was still about another kilometre away the finish line. But my legs would be burning and my lungs were about to give up, and all I wanted to do was plop down on the floor and rest. But I wanted that PB, and so I kept pushing, and I kept pushing, and I kept pushing, despite the pain, despite the tiredness, fighting to the end. And in a sense, that's what Paul means here, where to fight and fight and fight right until the end, until we don't have a breath left in our body. We're to fight until the end, until the day when Christ returns. Not because that's, not, that's what saves us, of course not. We're saved by Christ's death on the cross and that alone. That's the only way our sins are forgiven. See, we don't fight to earn a spot in heaven, of course not. But rather, out of thankfulness for what God has done for us, we fight until we've used every breath in our body. And what does that fighting look like? Well, it means the final one, fastening onto. We fasten onto that eternal life that we've been given. Have a look again at verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Where to take hold of, where to cling to, where to fasten onto the eternal life we've been given with everything we have. So it's not something new that we cling on to, it's not some special new thing, but rather it's the very foundation of our faith. It's what we've believed in, right, from the start, the eternal life that's given through Christ's life, death and resurrection, that we have forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And it's those beliefs, that truth, that we're to fasten on to. And it's what those truths that Timothy publicly proclaimed and confess before many witnesses, as we see here. But as you'd know, that's actually why we get those who become members here at church to give their testimony. Because we, it's, it's such a great thing to publicly proclaim, publicly confess in the presence of many witnesses that you are fastening onto, that you are holding tight to this eternal life, 
And it's a great encouragement for us, as we see. It's always one of the highlights of church for me. But fighting the good fight of the faith means fastening onto this promise of eternal life, fastening onto it and not letting go. I once heard a story about a man who shot an eagle, which is a little bit sad, but he shot the eagle. And do you know what he found when he went and inspected this eagle's body? Latched onto the eagle's throat was the dead, decomposed skull of a weasel, just latched onto its throat. And what seems to have happened is that as the eagle swooped onto this weasel and grabbed the weasel with his talons, the weasel turned and bit onto the eagle's throat with everything he had. And then, despite dying, of course, and the body disappearing, the skin coming off the skull, despite everything, that skull was still latched onto the throat of the eagle. And it's a little bit of a morbid illustration, but I really like it because despite being torn and eviscerated, still the weasel wouldn't let go. And so tightly was it clinging to the throat of that eagle that it eventually just became a skull clamped down on the eagle's throat and still it wouldn't let go. And in a sense, that's what we're to be like, clinging to the promise of eternal life with everything we have, no matter what, so that nothing can shake us loose, not even death. Paul then says in verses 13 and 14, he says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, I charge you to do this and to keep doing this. Keep fleeing ungodliness. Keep following after godliness. Keep fighting the good fight. And keep fastening onto the eternal life you have. And when are we to do this too? Well, until Christ returns. Have a look at verses 13 to 15. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, when God, which God will bring about in his own time. See, we're to live in light of Christ's return, to keep on living until that day. Because there will come a day when Jesus Christ will return. And Paul tells us, you'll need to give an account for your life on that day. You'll need to explain how you lived. Jesus will ask you, did you flee and keep fleeing ungodliness? Did you pursue and follow godliness single-mindedly? Did you fight the good fight of the faith? Not just for 10 rounds, but for a lifetime. And did you fasten on to that promise of eternal life and not let go no matter what? He'll ask us and we'll need to give an account. We'll need to answer him. And I wonder, if, he, if Jesus was to return today as you got in the car and drove away from church, if he was to return today, what would your answer be? If you're being honest with yourself. See, these are Paul's final words to Timothy. They're not some foolish and flippant words like Oscar Wilde or some uh, arrogant mocking like John Sedgwick. These are vitally important words meant to ensure that we're living in light of Christ's return. And so are you. And then we're given a wonderful benediction by Paul in verses 15 and 16. Have a look with me. 
God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. What a marvellous description of God that is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords that no one is an equal to, that the one that lives forever, to him be honour and might forever. And what a great note to end on. I mean, isn't that such a great final word? But did you notice something? The letter doesn't actually end yet. Uh, there's a little bit more. Just when we think Paul is done, just when he brings it to such a great conclusion, he keeps going. And this is actually a characteristic of Paul. Uh, he doesn't know how to stop In Paul's letter to the Romans, he tries to end three times. In Paul's actual final letter to Timothy, again, tries to end three times. Uh, He's like that bloke when he comes over to your place and he says, oh, well, I I need to go now, I should head off. But before I do, just one more thing, and one more thing, and one more thing, then 30 minutes later, he's still there. That's what Paul's like. He doesn't know how to stop. And so despite coming to such a great end, giving such a wonderful benediction, He then gives two final bonus words, a word about money and a word to Timothy. Now, firstly, he gives a word about money, and in particular, he gives a word to those of us who have a lot of money, to those who are wealthy. He warns them and he warns us, don't put your hope in money because it will let you down. Have a look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And I think we certainly need to hear this, don't we? Uh, One particular study I found said that Australia is number two in the world for top 10 richest countries based on average wealth per adult. And here in Surrey Hills and the surrounding suburbs, we're a particularly wealthy part of an already wealthy country. And so we live with a level of wealth that makes uh, even kings in the past look poor by comparison. We have an incredible amount of wealth and that can make it so easy for us to trust our wealth, to put our hope in our wealth and think that it will provide for us, that it's our safety net and that it's what will bring us joy. But Paul says, don't be fooled. It won't and it can't. Wealth is actually so uncertain. And we know that you just need to look at all the stock market crashes, the global financial crisis and so many issues over just the last 10 years, leave alone the last 100 years, where money has let people down. And Paul warns us, don't put your hope in wealth. Don't store up treasures on earth. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. See, wealth isn't a sin, but it is a responsibility. Now, you might be familiar with Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, his famous quote, with great power comes great responsibility. In a sense, what Paul's saying is, with great wealth comes great responsibility. The responsibility to use it for gospel work. Have a look at verses 18 and 19. Command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, that's the whole point of money. It's a gift from God to do good things with, to care for the poor and the needy, to help those who no one else will care for. 
and above all, to facilitate gospel ministry. See, that's what it's talking about, I think, with storing up treasures in heaven. Those treasures are lost souls, people who have come to know God. Now, that's why here at church we give 12% of our giving to missionaries as they proclaim the gospel in the Middle East and in Asia and all around the world. So when you give to the church, that's what you're doing. And how great will it be in heaven one day when someone comes up to you and they say to you, we never met, you don't know me, but actually I lived in the Middle East and your church facilitated missionaries coming there and proclaiming the truth of who God is. And so in God's grace, through the work of his Holy Spirit, I became a Christian. I mean, how great would that be? Talk about storing up treasures for heaven, something to look forward to in heaven. Seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's what we use our money for. I've got a friend who is um, on a school council of a prestigious school in Sydney, and he said, uh, reasonably regularly, people come along, old boys come along, and they want to donate money to the school to have a new building built, as you do. And what they usually say is that they want the building named after them. So they're like, we'll give you this large sum of money to build this building and name it after us. Uh, This same friend used to be involved with a Bible college in Sydney and he said there were quite a few times where people came and gave much larger sums of money than they did at this, the old boys did with this school. Yet they always gave it on one condition, the condition of anonymity. They didn't want anyone to know that they were giving that money. And why didn't they want anyone to know? Well, because they're not interested in being known. Rather, they're interested in storing up treasures in heaven. They're interested in investing their money for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. And Paul gives this final word to the rich, to us. He says, don't invest in the things of this world. Don't use your money for the things of this world, but rather be generous and store up treasures in heaven. And then finally, Paul has a word for Timothy. He says, guard what's been entrusted to you. Guard the truth of the gospel. Don't get caught up like these other babblers. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the posing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. He says, Timothy and Christian leaders, they're to guard what's been deposited to their care to guard the truth of the gospel, to guard the truth of the Bible, to guard what we have here. The word used is uh, entrusted or deposited. In a sense, we've been entrusted or had something of great value deposited with us to care for. It's a little bit like safety deposit boxes at banks. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're often in spy movies. I've never used one, but seen them in uh, Jason Bourne and that kind of thing a lot. But basically, they're a box in the bank where you can go to And you can leave your valuables and the bank will care for them and will protect it and keep it safe. And if they don't, then they need to recompense you. They need to pay you back. Actually, there's a bank in Kensington in New South Wales a while back and the bank burns down and they had lots of these safety deposit boxes there. And people lost all sorts of things. Money, 
gold, jewellery, precious family heirlooms, all sorts of things were lost and the bank had to pay people back because that valuable thing had been entrusted to them. It was their, their job to care for it. And in a sense, that's what we're like with the truth of the gospel. We've been entrusted with it. We've been given the charge to protect it. But of course, it's something far greater value than mere gold or mere jewellery or mere uh, family heirlooms. We have this thing of far greater value, the truth of who God is and what God's done through Christ on the cross. The truth of salvation and where to guard it and make sure it doesn't get distorted or corrupted. And so having been given those final two bonus words, Paul then just says finally, well, I've got to stop. And he simply says, grace be with you all. And then he really does stop. See, these are Paul's final words, or at least what he thought at the time were his final words. And last words are so powerful. Someone's last words can tell you so much about them. For Oscar Wilde, it showed us his humour. For John Sedgwick, it showed us his fearlessness. For Leonardo da Vinci, his insanely high standards. But for Paul, it's something far, far greater. It shows his dear concern for us. His dear concern that we'll live in light of Christ's return so that God might be glorified. He says, live in light of Christ's return. Live and keep living and don't stop living in light of Christ's return. See, Paul is speaking to you today. His final words of 1 Timothy. Are you listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, final words of Paul here in 1 Timothy. We thank you for the reminder it is to uh, live in light of Christ's return. And we do ask that you would help us be doing that. Please be pouring your Holy Spirit out on us enabling us to flee and to follow and to fight and to fasten on to. We do ask that you would uh, help us to do this, not because we think it earns our salvation, but rather out of thankfulness for the salvation you've already given us. Uh, Please also be helping us to uh, be using our finances well and to be guarding the truth of the gospel. So we thank you for these final words and we ask that you would help us to have open ears to hear them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.